Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and today we're going to talk about, to quote the singer Lord, Crystal Maybach, Diamonds on Your Timepiece, Jet Plains Islands, Tigers on a Gold Leash. We do care, though, about luxury goods, and specifically the investment merits of investing in this part of the market. To help frame the discussion, I have Javier Gonzalez-Lastra on the show today. Javier spent over 20 years in sell-side research, heading up consumer research divisions at several leading banks, including Goldman Sachs. These days, Javier is a portfolio manager with Tema ETFs, where he actively manages their newly launched Tema Luxury ETF. Welcome to the show, Javier. Thanks for having me, Michael. So Javier, I wonder if you could start us off by giving us an overview of the luxury goods sector. Who are the main players? How concentrated is it? And how big are the names? Yeah, sure. So the market is quite fragmented. So when you look at the different players, both in fashion, automotives, yacht manufacturers, they tend to be quite fragmented in, in nature, these markets. Um, however, that hasn't stopped uh, the companies, uh, especially when you get to the fashion end of uh, luxury goods, to build relatively large conglomerates in the last few years. And few, I'm talking obviously here, one or two decades. We have the example of LVMH, Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy, as it's uh, actually called, and that's a very large company. I think there was a lot of headlines not that long ago that the company had actually made it through the half a trillion euros market cap threshold. I think it's been the first European company to go through that, even if it's only been coming back from that uh, from that uh, achievement in, in, in recent weeks and uh, been replaced. I think it was Novo Nordisk uh, that has now got that accolade. So you and the team at Tema have created an ETF that provides investors exposure to this sector, and you actively manage the portfolio to optimize it for risk and return within that universe. So what about this sector appealed to your team? Yeah, sure. So at, at Tema, what we try to, to do is to identify basically secular trends, and we, we like to call it mega trends that can be alive or can survive many, many years or many, many decades, right? And... Amongst those themes, uh, we've identified that luxury is one of those themes that uh, we would like to offer exposure to our investors. Why luxury? Why have we identified that as a, as a mega trend, as a multi-year secular trend? Well, there are several factors driving that. One, first one is demographics. We are seeing an increasing number of females participating in the workforce there consumption as a consequence or the available spend that they can incur by having their own salaries, participating in the workforce in much more higher positions, managerial positions. Basically, the rise of the female in the in the workforce is uh, something that is well alive and is likely to continue into the, into the future. And we did identify, I think uh, this is well known, it's a fact in the luxury world, that uh, females account for around 80% of all purchasing decisions in the space. So very important that their available disposable income uh, rises, right? Another demographic trend that is very important to bear in mind is households are having less and less kids. So the average household, the number of kids has come down quite significantly and it's likely to continue to contract, right? That number. What that means is that Again, combined with the fact that females are participating in the workforce, they're having increased purchasing power, 
that purchasing power is also going more and more to themselves rather than to the children. And that is a trend that we see happening already for several years in Europe. It's starting to become very evident in the United States. And there's one big elephant in the room, which is China. China is now seeing the full force of the one-child policy that it implemented many, many years ago. And that's likely to basically support this mega trend that I'm highlighting. And the third one, I think it's very well known, the rising or the rise of the middle class in Asia. This has been ongoing for, for several years and I would say probably decades. We think that that's probably likely to continue and that will support also further the luxury spend that we are seeing rising in, in Asia, a cool market now for, for the space. Yeah, and I, and I imagine within this sector as well, there's, there's pretty decent pricing power. Can you talk a little bit about that? What, what, what gives these companies in particular that superpower? Yeah, I think it's been uh, very well documented by a lot of research that uh, luxury items tend to enjoy negative price elasticity. So, uh, I th- and I think that's driven by the des- desirability that a lot of these uh, luxury goods enjoy as, as, as a feature, right? So I think, you know, there's a very healthy debate out there as to what really the definition of luxury is, right? And there's a lot of views, but I think there's like four or five key features that distinguish or that you, you find across most luxury, real luxury goods. One is basically, as we said, desirability. You really, and what I mean by desirability is basically you really need more people to know the brand and decide the brand than, than they own it. That's the, that's the key to it. Craftsmanship is another feature that is very commonly found across luxury items. Obviously, quality quality has to be there. But I think timelessness is very important. The luxury brand, the luxury item has to basically be timeless in uh, through time, right? It cannot be that it's out, in and out of vogue, in and out of fashion. And then finally, heritage. A lot of the real luxury brands really have a strong story behind them, a strong heritage. And uh, all those put together, I think, define a luxury good. And the negative price elasticity, as I've uh, mentioned earlier, I think the key feature within that that drives the uh, the negative price elasticity is desirability and scarcity. And one of the things that I that was found interesting when we've chatted before about it, and I, I know you've written this before, and I, I actually jotted it down here was he said the aspirational nature of luxury goes beyond functionality and into desirability customers making an initial entry-level purchase are enticed up the product can you talk a bit about what you meant by that yes sure so what you find is that obviously together with economic cycles you will have your first purchasers of the these luxury items right so if you think about hermes hermes the key item that most individuals desire is the handbag, right? But right around the handbag, the Birkin handbag or the Kelly handbag, you have a whole ecosystem of products, accessories that Hermes produces and in a way tries to democratize the access to the brand. And this can be either, I don't know, handkerchiefs or belts, some more affordable products. So the brand recruits consumers into this ecosystem and then tries to up, up trade them, right? Obviously, that will depend. Hermes perfectly understands that it's not going to 
upsell a consumer that is a on an average salary or an income from a belt to a Birkin bag or a Kelly bag. But if that individual through its lifetime does succeed, let's say very much in the job, in their in the journey through life, and they end up, let's say, moving up the scale in terms of disposable income, that consumer will most likely be staying with the brand and being ex- able to access uh, those those more desired items. So I wonder if we could change gears for a sec here, Javier, and, and talk a little bit about when when you own these things or how you own them, rather. And I, I know before off the top, I know you don't recommend market timing, but let, let's talk about how luxury tends to perform over time and through the cycle like how do how do you respond to people who might consider it really strictly a trade that works during risk on periods yeah sure i think we've we've seen a little bit of that now with china right and sentiment in china is probably at the lowest point and uh, historically what we've seen is that luxury as a sector has been performing quite cyclic and i think again coming back to china where sentiment is so low that's exactly what has happened in the last couple of months what we argue, though, is that the sector overall actually has changed a bit. So if you look at the last uh, big recession back in 2008, 2009, the sector did indeed perform very cyclically during that period. But back then, it was very concentrated uh, regionally or geographically. So the vast majority of the sales of the industry depended on both U.S. or so North America and Europe. Today, you have a much more diversified uh, revenue base. Uh, so a lot of these groups not only have big pools of sales coming or being generated in Asia, but in some cases, actually, Asia is now the largest revenue generating region. So, of course, we can have a global recession. Of course, uh, everything can go into reverse in every region, but the, the likelihood of that is uh, it, it's lower than having basically the West going into synchronized recession. So there's a little bit more diversification now than there was in previous cycles. And therefore, we think that even if the sector initially reacts in a cyclical fashion, the reality, the underlying rea- reality is that the sector is uh, a lot more diversified and should prove more resilient. Besides that, every recession is different. We always like to like look at last recession and try to take that template as the to to look into the into the next one. I think what we do know about uh, these luxury companies is that the consumer base is actually very high end in terms of the income they enjoy, and a lot of these consumers that account for the large part of the uh, purchases of uh, many of these groups do not react necessarily to cyclical slowdowns. It's, it's other factors that will drive the slowdown in the purchases of these luxury goods. So when we look at the great financial crisis, there was a structural change in the economies, right? Uh, there was a big financial, global financial crisis that I think temporarily impacted the sector. COVID was a massive disruption for the, for the space too. If we're, what we're worried about is a cyclical slowdown, I would think that, uh, again, the sector might actually surprise on how resilient it might be because, again, this customer base that is so enjoys such a high income level or such a high wealth level doesn't necessarily react to, say, higher inflation, stagflation, or just a simple cyclical slowdown. Or, or interest rates. 
or interest rates. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I guess once you get to a certain level of uh, of wealth or or income, it, back to your price elasticity point earlier, I guess you've got a demand elasticity here where you're in elasticity as well, where they're just they don't care, right? It doesn't make a dent as much, and they kind of have a long term view that, it, that they can continue to purchase at the same level. Right, and. I mean, there's other studies that have been done, and we, we've, that, we've looked at it ourselves, uh, where it's actually probably a negative world effect at the global level that would impact more these purchases of luxury goods rather than just the economic cyclical slowdown. So from that perspective, a lot of people have tried to link stock market uh, performance to to the sales of these groups of this industry, right? Uh, so. I think that's uh, that's another thing to bear in mind. But I, I, again, I insist no no two recessions are the same. I think the situation now is what it is. We're having difficult period in in Asia and in China in particular, which is a very large market for for this industry. But at the same time, we're starting to see uh, strong reactions from authorities uh, to try and reverse that direction, and that actually could uh, at some point uh, help. Uh, quite significantly this, uh, this group, so this, uh, this industry. So looking at the recent performance of luxury stocks, you, you sort of referred to it earlier that they've had a bit of a check back in, uh, in, in, in 2023 after bouncing, I guess, earlier in the year. So looking at the, that performance, how attractive is the sector currently in your view? What do, what do valuations look like? So some of the valuations in the space are starting to look very interesting because of this uh, pullback we've, uh, we've seen in share prices, especially across European, French, Italian names, which are, you've had the combination there of Europe risk premium going up and the linkage with Chinese economic slowdown of fears. Some of the multiples on which these uh, companies are trading now, substantially below, let's say, five-year averages or even 10-year averages. Some others uh, that have been looking into detail actually in the last, uh, over the weekend, starting to look like they're trading even below or at the lowest points uh, since uh, since COVID. Or an interesting point in history was, for instance, for many of these groups, the anti-graph campaign of Xi Jinping back in 2013, 2014. They took a hit. A lot of their share prices and valuations dropped uh, around 2014. Some of the stocks are approaching those levels or there right now. So I think the last two, three months have opened quite an interesting opportunity from the valuation perspective. And I understand the, the balance sheets look quite different than in the past as well. They're looking a lot healthier than historically. Yeah, absolutely. So again, going back to the point I made earlier that we always try to look at the last recession to try and find the template for the next one. Back in the great financial crisis, a lot of these companies entered that very difficult period with uh, relatives, relatively high leverage. If you look at the balance sheets of this, a lot of the companies in the space, they're in much, much healthier positions. And actually, many of them actually have net cash positions. So that's a, that's a world of change from previous crisis. So as you're constructing the ETF, what is it you're looking for, really, like in terms of uh, the core characteristics for for a holding as to whether it gets a higher or lower weighting within uh, within the the fund? So it's really conviction. The way we conduct the investment process is based um, first and foremost, obviously, is based on that thematic trend that we want to tap into. So that's the the growth in in luxury spent globally. 
we have a universe of stocks that we can look into. And then from that point, it's really bottom up. We want to invest into companies that have uh, solid business models, good track records in terms of capital allocation, are shareholder friendly, and have brands that in themselves offer are going to offer shareholders that invest in, in, in the business relatively impenetrable modes. Because by definition, if you have a multi-year heritage brand that is timeless uh, and is unique, that in itself is the biggest competitive advantage that you can have, right? So we're looking for, for, for that in the universe of stocks that we can invest in. And once we identify the names that tick the box uh, in terms of those uh, qualities, then we will decide whether we invest X, Y, Z amount of the fund, depending on the three levels of conviction. And we structure that into three boxes, low, medium, and uh, high. That will determine the position size of the um, in the fund. Then uh, our investment process obviously looks at risk management. For us, risk management a lot is defined by the balance sheet. That's usually where the big blow up show up. So we try to forensically look at the balance sheet, analyze whether there's any risks that we should be aware of. And obviously I've not mentioned valuation, but valuation is a very important part of the investment process. We don't ignore that, of course, but that would be part of that conviction with some of the stops potentially, you know, not being so incredibly attractive initially in terms of uh, valuation and therefore being potentially on, say, the low conviction box with the possibility that as the valuation becomes more attractive, moves up into the medium or high, right? So that in a nutshell is more or less uh, how we address the investment process at Demo. So, so what are the key metrics that you look for in uh, in your holdings? I put less emphasis on valuation, and I argue that if you if you're investing for the long term, eventually your return on invested capital and growth are two more way more important factors than valuation. If you look at uh, long periods of time, you know, and and you got a a stock that is delivered consistently on those two metrics, ROIC and growth, you'll find that if you conduct a backtesting or, or a back, backward-looking uh, analysis, the difference in returns if you bought that stock, say, on 15 times earnings or 15 times EBIT or 20 times EBIT over a 10-year period, the difference in your compound annual growth rate in the appreciation of your investment is actually tiny. It's way more important whether the ROIC was consistent and high and the growth was good. The growth rate of the business or the growth rate of the, of the revenues of the business, right? So what other thematic ETFs has Tema launched or, or have in the works? Sure. So at the moment, we are live with the luxury fund. We are live with the oncology fund, the cancer fund that my colleague David Song manages. We also have a American reshoring fund, which my colleague Chris manages, and we're also live with the royalties fund. Amongst the ones that we're looking to launch soon, there's one that I will be 
managing and that's a global beverages fund uh, that will be investing both in alcoholic, non-alcoholic, all kinds of beverages on a global basis. So we're coming to the end of our, our chat here today, Javier, and I wonder if you could answer this two-part question for me. What was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? Sure. My first job was on the South side as a media analyst. Uh, so I joined a very good group of analysts back in, I think it was 2000, right at the peak. I will never forget for two and a half years, I didn't see a single share price in my, in my sector go up for probably more than a week. Sea of red, huh? <laughs> it was a sea of red. Yes, absolutely. But I didn't lose faith and uh, eventually um, things uh, normalized and things looked a lot more brighter. But by that time, I'd moved uh, sectors. I had been given a promotion and I moved to the consumer space. So looking back in, uh, through my career, if there's one piece of advice to anyone that was to follow my, my footsteps in investment research, I would say just avoid the noise. There is a lot of noise in the market that distracts you from the realities that will really drive the uh, investment returns that you're seeking. So, for instance, when we're in a bear market and your Bloomberg screens are all red, you know what I do? I just switch it off and I don't look at them because it's just not adding me anything. It's just distracting me. So, it's noise and the more that you're able to filter that, I think the better. I've been speaking today with Javier Gonzalez Lastra, Portfolio Manager with Tema ETFs. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Excellent. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets. <laughs>